Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Underground Nights. I'm Paul Field, here in the nursing home capital of the world, Bexhill-on-Sea, and I'm joined by my co-host in Atlantic Canada, Mr. James Mullinger. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is also something of a retirement community that I live in, so clearly another way in which we are joined at the hip, even though we're on opposite sides of the Atlantic. Excellent. Mate, we've got so much to get through today. It's, it's going to be insane. Yeah. But first, we need to touch upon a few things where you kind of... It's what, four four months ago since you did the last yeah. episode, and you announced that you perhaps rather foolishly yeah. booked a, a huge arena, and that you were going to fill it and sell more tickets than Seinfeld. Yes, that what happened? Uh, well, the the weird thing uh, about that, uh, so yeah, so I, I believe when I when I revealed that on air, it might have been the first time I'd kind of announced that I was planning this thing, and of course it's been the busiest kind of four months ever. But but yeah, the weird thing that happened was that I did indeed not only set out the arena. I did also beat Seinfeld's record at the venue, which uh, it's probably important to add that Seinfeld held the record at the venue. But um, there were other other performers that have played this same venue who have nowhere near reached that number. So I'm going to throw out some weird things. So please let me just be clear that, you know, I am well aware that I am a a nobody comedian. I I am a working jobbing club comic. That's who I am. Uh, I'm not implying otherwise. However, it is a fact that I sold double the amount of tickets than Def Leppard sold when they played <laughs> the same venue. Um, I sold about a thousand more than Guns N' Roses when they last played there. Uh, about 500 more than Iron Maiden, which is, of course, all completely insane. Uh, it does also explain why I've been so busy, because uh, I did not have a big marketing team behind me to do this. I literally uh, used my usual approach of complete grassroots promotion and basically just went out into... I, uh, for those uh, listeners that either don't know where I live or uh, listening for the first time, I, I moved from London, England to a, a place in Atlantic Canada called St. John, New Brunswick, which is a small city. It's a city the size of... And I did my research on this when I moved moved here so I could say, tell English people it's a city the same size as Oxford it's the same size as Blackpool and it's the same size as Hollywood those are three very similar places but uh, <laughs> a little bit different places but with um, similar populations so basically my uh, business model if it can be called that when it's not really a business model it's just a guy wanting to tell jokes on stage but essentially my business model has been come here uh, do shows to people who like them build a fan base and then uh, as what happened, uh, sell out uh, the biggest arena in in the, in the east coast of Canada. So 
Uh, yeah, it's been a crazy few weeks, but basically, uh, yeah, all my dreams came true. So I feel quite guilty, really, that um, all my dreams came true. I did panic and panic so much when you announced it that I actually bought the first two tickets. You did, you did, <laughs> which was incredibly kind. And you bought two VIP tickets, no less, which weren't cheap. And you sent, uh, you you wrote to me saying I bought two tickets, which was such a nice thing for you to do. And you said give these to someone who who needs them. And you know, I, I gave them to um, some people that. Uh, wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford to come, and they were there in the front row. So uh, amazing, brilliant! I'm really pleased about oh, that. Well, thank you, mate. It was a, it was a wonderful move, and um, the whole thing has been filmed for a CBC documentary uh, about me and why I moved to this part of the world. And of course, the the, the film, the documentary film, charts the build up to this, and it shows how I went from. Uh, selling no tickets to selling more than Iron Maiden and Guns N' Roses. Um, so it, it charts their positive. So that film will actually air on CBC nationally in Canada in August, September. But then after that, it will be available on the CBC website for anybody uh, in England and elsewhere to watch. So uh, check it out. Not to piss on your chips, mm. I did Google things to do in New Brunswick. Oh, yes. Just to see you know, what you were competing against. Yeah. And I came across a website called 35 Facts About New Brunswick. Yeah. And I have to say, you were up against the Brunswick Potato World Museum. Damn right I was. Sussex having 60 covered bridges, the most in the whole world. This is true. This is how... <laughs> and somewhere called Shediac having the world's largest lobster, which is not only 35 foot long, it weighs 90 tonnes. We also have the so... world, the biggest fiddle, I believe, as well. But yes, indeed. It's, uh... <laughs> no, but that's what it's all about. I mean, it's, they are. you know... That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Um, come on, let's move on to Record Store Day because this is something that's close to both of our hearts. Yeah. And I, I was, again, really excited to see that you were potentially foolish enough, I thought, to put a record well, out. Well, I mean, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, that really sums up what an idiot I am. In, in, the, in the space of one month, I decided to do two things as, as an unknown comedian. I book an arena, which I have to pay for up front, and then I also decided to release my new album on vinyl with no digital download or CD, um, literally vinyl only. I decided to do both those things in one month, which proves... Either A, that I'm a, a, a maverick, or B, that I'm, I'm an idiot who, who, who loves losing money and, um, and uh, clearly a terrible businessman. But um, yes, indeed, it's, it had always been a dream to release an album on vinyl. So I did it. And weirdly, I sold the most copies that night at the arena, which possibly makes sense in many ways. But yeah, for Record Store Day, obviously you and I uh, both on Record Store Day love to go out and, and trawl the stores and pick up, you know, bargains and so forth. Although nowadays they're not bargains, are they? It's, it's over. No, I, I was up at half past five to get over to Eastbourne wow. in East Sussex. And uh, I spent £28 on a Thompson Twins LP, amongst many other items. Right. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's amazing to think that when we kind of got into record collecting, it was kind of... It's not a cheap thing to collect, but certainly an affordable thing to collect. Whereas now it's almost become a, a rich man's game, unfortunately. But um, uh, that's that, that's a debate for another time. But yeah, record store day, I got up and decided to promote my um my, my plan for promoting my album was to perform six shows in six different places across New Brunswick. Now, to give you an idea, that some of these places it was a two-hour drive between them. Other times there was two in a city. But I did six record stores all across the province. 
And it was an absolute dream. And, and to be honest, I mean, A, it was an amazing PR exercise. And of course, it meant I did shift a lot more copies of my album than I probably would have done. But let's be honest, if I phoned up my, if I said to my wife, oh, sorry, this Saturday, I'm going to be driving around New Brunswick buying records. She said, no, you're not. You are going to look after the kids. Whereas by promoting an album, suddenly I'm allowed to do the thing that I dream of doing. So, yeah, it was a wonderful day. Well, I've I've got a copy of this, James. And me and Catherine sat down, had a glass of wine and did something that people probably did back in the 60s and 70s when comedy albums were quite popular. Mm -hmm. Just listen to a record of comedy, and it was absolutely brilliant. We genuinely laughed our tits off. And I have to a special mention, because you put one of the gig posters in the the packaging, which you signed. But being British, it was in your jeans that you had to draw a cock and balls on it by having a marker pen in your hand. <laughs> Even though it was your own poster and your own much. face, you couldn't not draw a cock and balls on it because you had a marker you pen in your hand. The Englishman. <laughs> but you cannot, absolutely. And Canadians don't appreciate a good cock and balls. Whereas, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen one of my earlier shows where I had a whole segment that I, of a show that I turned in England where, um, I showed all of my schoolboy penis drawings. So, like, it was Gulliver's <laughs> cock and Noah's cock, and it had cocks being bitten off. Basically, I mean, I mean, stuff that super bad could only dream of. I was doing way before that, and and so, I mean, I'm something of a connoisseur when it comes to drawing cocks and balls. So, yeah, when I'm sending one of my favourite Englishmen my new comedy album, of course, I'm going to draw a cock and balls. I believe was it was it jizzing in my face. I, it wasn't, I I, I was fighting. It was going in my mouth, I believe. It was, it was on my head. It was, one of the three it was just on your head. Yeah, dickhead, exactly. It, it had to be one of the three classics, either the dickhead or the jizzing on the face, one of those classics. And and it has to be said, the, the, the comedy on the record is as mature as that. So if you are listening to this podcast right now thinking, oh, well, that is pathetic. A grown man, 38 years old, father of two, drawing a cock and balls. Well, you know what? Don't buy my album. But if you're thinking, <laughs> cock and balls, jamesmullinger.com, go to the store page and buy my new album. Absolutely. It genuinely is amazing. <laughs> really, really funny. Uh, last bit in the housekeeping. Actually, two last bits. James, I went to the cup final on Saturday. Yeah. What cup? Do you know who's playing? I mean, is this a football thing? It's a football thing. Oh, congratulations for going to the cup. Uh, I, was it Leicester playing? I, I heard they did well in something. No, oh, it's Crystal Palace. We played. I'm, I'm a Crystal Palace I, supporter. I remember that. Yes, it's. A... We we played Manchester United. Wow, and who won? Well, ten minutes to go, we scored, and then we lost two one. Oh well, I'm sorry to hear that, but it, but um, it's the taking part that counts. Right. Where's uh, your your lad, Hunter? Yes, Hunter. Yeah. Was he was he born in South London? Yeah, tooting, yeah. Right, so, you know, there's a good case here that could get him into being a Palace support, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, you, you, you know what, because you're my favourite person that is a football fan, I have to say that uh, if I am going to encourage him, which of course I will be, because you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a British boy, but he's living in Canada, I'm going to push him to support Crystal Palace. Excellent. So that, that's two of you now, so that, that's great. <laughs> Last bit for housekeeping. Um, we had a couple of people asking about this comedian's guide to survival. Thank you. Yes, uh, uh, I hear a very good film. Um, yes, uh, comedian's guide to survival. Um, the release date for England hasn't been finalised yet, but they are. It will be like September, October this year, um, which is weird for me that like in the space of one month, 
in Canada, there's a documentary about my real life being aired nationally. And then the same month in England, there's this uh, film that is obviously semi-fictional. But obviously, it's a, it's a piece of... It is a, a drama. It's not a documentary. Comedy drama. Uh, that is, of course, airing... Uh, that is going to uh, screen nationally across England the same month. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a weird month with people kind of saying, is this true? Is this true? But, yeah, it is out then. The film's looking better than ever. Um, and to be honest... Um, it's just really nice from the people that have seen it like yourself, whose opinions I respect. And there's a, a massive Canadian stand up called Mike Ward. I don't know if you've read about him in the newspaper, but he's currently on a uh, human rights trial for a joke he made. Google it. Google a joke. Really? It, it, yeah. I mean, the story itself is very depressing. You've got this comedian who refused to pay out to someone trying to intimidate him. And the joke is horrendously hilarious, and it is uh, uh, it's highly offensive. But this guy is one of the sweetest, nicest guys ever. He's a comedian. That's what we're supposed to do. He's currently on trial. It's insane that the freedom of speech is being challenged in this way. Google it. Mike Ward, he's a Quebec comedian. This, he appears in the film. He's actually the guy who tells uh, the character of me to drown myself. and, uh, and, to, and Or he wants to drown him, and he should go and kill himself and all the rest of it. He uh, saw the film in full, and he gave me the best. Well, it's not it's not really a compliment to me, but he gave an amazing compliment to James Buckley in that he said it was the first film he'd ever watched where the, the stand-up comedian uh, being played by an actor actually looked like a real stand-up comedian on stage, which um, to me is the best thing I can hear because I I hate watching movies when you're like, well, a stand-up wouldn't do that. And yet, I believe Buckley has the stage presence of a stand-up. And of course, I mean, it helps that, that we've literally given him. He, he, word for word, the material is my is my my material. So even when he's being booed off and being, you know, raspberry off stage, uh, uh, d- despite my better wishes, we've used my actual act for all those things. Well, I've seen it as you said, and yeah, um, yeah he's way funnier than you are. Yeah, well, this, he, this is true. This is true. He, <laughs> m- 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 maybe that's what Mike Ward meant. Maybe that's. A- <laughs> he was just being more diplomatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's being more diplomatic. Yeah. Um, should we do the news? Let's do the news. So there's a there's a lot of news this week, James. Um, yeah. And I know that one of well, both of our a favourite of ours, Human Traffic. Yes. Two. Human Traffic Two. <laughs> How is this possible? Well, in many ways. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I mean, to me, the question, how is this possible, is the question, how the hell did Justin Carrigan not go on to make another? And of course, like you and like many people listening, I've heard a million rumours and reasons why Carrigan didn't go on to make. I mean, I believe he has made some films since, but didn't go on to have a huge career because it is beyond insane. Human traffic is amazing. It yeah. was amazing then, even if back then you didn't think it was amazing for various reasons. There is no doubt that that, on a small budget, is an incredible piece of work to have pulled off, uh, just visually and aesthetically and, and everything about it. I loved human traffic. I, I, I'll tell you a very, very quick story but, um, before you give your thoughts about it. But the reason that human traffic is such a, a special place in my heart is that um, I was... I guess about 18, 19, 20 when it, uh, 19, 20 when it came out and um, was partying like these guys were. Obviously, my parents being right wing Daily Mail readers found that part of my life very difficult to understand. And by difficult, I mean terrifying. And, and they thought I should be locked up. 
I sent my dad to watch Human Traffic, and he went to the Prince Charles Cinema during the day. Took he worked at NatWest Bank, took some time off from the bank, went to the Prince Charles to watch Human Traffic, and came out of it and just and he said to me after he goes, I get it, I get it now. Like that film turned my dad from being a you know um, ecstasy will kill you after one blah 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 into a oh you know now I get it. And actually weirdly after he watched Human Traffic, he wanted to go to Fabric with me, and I took him to Fabric, and that is another story. But um, so for me, Human Traffic is I, I watched it a thousand times. It was the movie that we always watched when we got back at five in the morning from Fabric. Uh, how can Human Traffic 2 work? I think quite ingeniously well in that it could be in theory about people like us who, 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 who you know, um, still feel like we are that age inside and, and still want to be doing that kind of stuff. I don't know. Maybe that's an angle. What do you think? I think, yeah, I think it's good. Well, from what I've heard, it's going to be set in Ibiza. Obviously, we always mention Danny Dyer on our <laughs> podcast. What? He's tweeted and he said, Moff, one of my favourite characters ever. That's all I'm saying on the matter. Wink. Right. It's hard to imagine that... Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I was going to say it's hard to imagine John Sim coming back. But then... Is you, it? What's he been doing lately? Oh. I obviously did that, that... Is it Mad Men? Where they go off on that... To, they go to Spain and they end up in South Africa and they have this kind of all, all this that awful Sky One thing with Philip Lane. yeah 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 I yeah I, I I couldn't really get into that I mean that I think that you, you're right he hasn't done a great deal and the thing with this but again I mean no one thought Ewan Gregor was going to come back for Trainspotting 2 and he did I mean to me train, Human Traffic 2 is an important thing because A I have been desperate to see what, what more what Kerrigan was going to do next and of course he has done a film since you enjoy it one and this, but it is insane that someone who basically comes out with a debut as impressive as Danny Boyle's debut yeah. doesn't then go on to have Danny Boyle's career. Like it really is a, a fascinating tale in what went wrong. It's kind of this, uh, like the Edward Furlongs or all, all these people that basically do something huge, and you go, how the how that Haley Joel Osmond, like how did you screw this up, guys? You know, even I guess Halle Berry to an extent, you know, who had quite a long career, but then that, you know, it's 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 weird. These people that just mess it up. Yeah, so, I think from what I gather, he was slightly kind of hippieish clubber type and very well-meaning, and then got fucked by the industry. Right, right, right. Which which you understand, and then probably thought, I don't want to go through that again. I mean, it is amazing yeah. that the film turned out as well as it did, given you know the, uh, the as Danny said, they were all on pills while they were filming it. Um, <laughs> you know, it really is. I mean, I, I I've watched it recently. I mean, I I really really do like it, and I think possibly. It is a fascinating thing to come back to those characters 20 years later because, I mean, I'll, you know, without wanting to be too explicit with the details, I have friends uh, who I was partying with like back then who still do it occasionally. I have friends that still do it a lot. Uh, I have friends who um, have very responsible jobs, high-powered jobs that still like to do it discreetly occasionally. Uh, the one thing I really don't have, and, and again, by all means, you know, you can call this the middle-class privilege, whatever else, but I don't have anyone that kind of burn out. Like I don't have anyone that's that's that you know lot has lost their mind. And I mean I've I've got a couple of schoolmates that got into smack and that kind of thing. But but for the most part, I would say the friends that I was partying with uh, 20 years ago doing that, uh, they're all now doing very well and still doing that, not as regularly, but regularly enough. And yeah, I know, I, I, mate. I know exactly what you're saying, yeah. and the people I know, yeah. pretty much the same. I don't know anyone who's kind of frazzled out and burnt. And funny thing is, it wasn't long ago. I was actually, I think I was, I was in Hastings, and I tweeted, and you asked me yes. 
about the crypt. The crypt. And that's what I, and how the fuck did you, I was like, whoa, it, hang on. It was that, You're it, from Maidenhead. Yeah. I'm from, how do you know about the crypt? It, it, and it, that blew my mind. Yeah, well, it's true. That was the period. It was that period when I was, I was at King's University with a guy from Hastings. And uh, every weekend we would get on the train on a Friday night. Marshall Pill get on the train, go down, come to the crypt, and uh, and and part of your weekend. And it's funny. I mean, that group of friends that I had back then, they're all you know. I mean, some you know people slow down, blah blah blah. But I would say for the most part, um, I, so I think that's kind of interesting. You know, it, it, what's it, what I hope they don't do with human traffic is I hope it doesn't become this big kind of Peter's friends naval glaze session of like you know. Because um, the wonderful thing with human trafficking is it did show the people talking bollocks at three in the morning and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I guess the only difference is, is that back then, when it was five in the morning, we'd all be going, you know, what are we going to do with our lives? We're going to be friends forever. And now we kind of go, oh, my God, I can't believe we've been doing this for 20 years. I can't believe we're still mates. Blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, in many ways, the bollocks that we talk is still the same bollocks. I just hope it doesn't get too philosophical because what I loved so much about human trafficking was the fact that there wasn't this big dark depressing like the the, the 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 as dark as it got was the bit where danny dyer trips up with a come down and goes can right i mean that was that was the extent of the big of the big downside you know um i i sincerely hope that they go for the same upbeat happy approach and it's interesting now 20 years on we're kind of safe to say this that you know that all of the fears back then was like this thing hanging over us was, oh, well, is the whole generation, uh, you know, are we actually consigning ourselves to an early death because blah, blah, blah. And actually it transpires that, no, all along, everything uh, was hunky-dory. Yeah, we all had a jolly good time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we did. We had a jolly good time. We did. How would you describe rave culture between the years 18... <laughs> The 1996, when you were watching 50 plus lights. Well, I would have to say, we had a jolly good time. <laughs> oh, dear, my children might listen to this. God, don't, please don't. Um, we had a jolly good time. <laughs> right, uh, what's next? Can. No. Next, carry on. No, carry on, next. Carry on. Um, yeah, Errol makes soft call. Yeah. In, I've got wind, there's a little bit of news. I was thinking, oh, it's a new Danny Dyer film. Yeah. No new carry-on films now maybe not for you but for me this was huge because i grew up loving these sunday afternoon it was like a regular thing always sit in front of the telly glued to a carry-on film my dad loved them exactly the same and i'm sure like me one of your first ever wanks absolutely Absolutely. carry-on yeah exactly just jim dale's uh the chiseled features (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah like carry-on camping babs is yeah i'm exactly the same and also of course back then when we're that young it it seemed incredibly risque if anything it I mean, it's a kind of a relevant thing, given we're talking about uh, cult comedies today, uh, later on in the show, that, that you know, for, for probably for both of us, the sex comedy element gave us this kind of frisson of excitement that probably did lead into a love of films like Porky's at a later age. But, yeah, so so, so given your um, love and history with these films, Paul, are you excited about the prospects of a new batch? I am, and purely because Jonathan Sothcott has gone on record to say there won't be any stunt casting. Yeah. They won't be putting any stand-ups in it. Interesting. Which kind of blew blew my kind of. I thought you were nailed on for the Jim Dale ride. I know, I know. But I guess <laughs> he, he was very quickly nipping that in the bud for both of us. Yeah, that's quite a quick. You know, it's not often that someone someone releases a, a, a press release simply to get the message across to one lowly friend. 
pretty pretty bang on the money. He, he may as well just said, yes, wonderful news. We'd like to announce we're, we're making uh, three or four new Sarah Mavones and no James Mullins, you're not having a fucking part. Like, that, I mean, that would have been a bit easier than going around the bushes like that, but yes. I'm not joking, though. You, you would have been the Jim Dale part. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think You can take that however you want, mate. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it is, it's interesting because I remember a few years ago when there was talk of one being made, which I don't think was made. Am I right? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It, it, yeah, the last one was Columbus. Columbus, right. Which, again, I remember that coming out and being disappointed. In it. And, again, I, I'm like you. I was the hugest Karen fan growing up. There is obviously scope for a Karen film to work now. You know, people, people keep saying, oh, well, what about – I've read in a couple of stupid articles saying, you know, oh, but you know, it's an enlightened time now, and it's like, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be full of full of misogyny. But then, is it an enlightened time? And anyone that's seen bloody, uh, you know, Bad Neighbours or indeed almost any Seth Rogen, Jad Apatow film, I mean, I mean, the Karen films are no less or more misogynistic than those, and that's not to say that the, that any of those filmmakers are misogynist. But you know, uh, it, it, the Karen films were not any less enlightened than the 90% of comedies and some of the comedies we're going to go and talk about in a minute. The one thing I will say about the potential of this, I mean, I don't know why he's made the statement no stand-ups. That, that seems uh, odd to me to, um, to rule out, um, rule people out. But at the same time, you know, I guess the, the thing with the carry-ons is they, is they were all actors who could act. Like, I, I get his point. I think it, was, it harks back to Columbus because he brought, there were, I think there were quite a few stand-ups in Columbus right. and that tanked massively and just didn't work. I think he wants a fresh cast, new, you know, completely, in a way, a lot of new people. I've heard Sheridan Smith floated. Yeah. She'd be really good. She would be great. And again, I mean, I mean, if that's the direction they're going, that makes perfect sense because Sheridan Smith is in many ways you know, uh, a modern incarnation of the, those brilliant performers from back then, when you think about it. Like, they were all amazing comic actors. And that's what she is. She is an amazing, I mean, I mean, a, 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 an amazing actor, but also um, has, has impeccable comic timing. So um, you're right, maybe that's what he meant, you know, uh, just wants people that can actually do the job. Cool. Right, let's move on. Can. Right, can. Well, <laughs> I, I, where do you want to start? Well, I think where I want to start is just to lead on from that, because it's interesting. We were just talking then about like him not wanting stunt casting and not wanting to cast stand-ups. And yet, the um, interesting, the film that just won the, the Palm Door, which is Ken Loach's new film, I, Daniel Blake, which is, of course, about um, the awful, you know... Uh, 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 conditions and benefit cuts that the, that the conservatives have, have put in, and it's a it's a it's a it's a true story, slightly polemic, but it's also it's not a true story. Sorry, it's a it's a fictional story, but it's um uh, obviously based on real things that are happening in Britain at the moment. But interestingly, you know, like Kathy Kathy Come Home, which which was famous for bringing about political change. There's a lot of talk about this film bringing about uh, political change in England as well. But the interesting thing about this film is that the lead actor in it is a guy called Dave Johns, Davy Johns who's been um, a staple of the British stand-up circuit for over 20 years. And he's acted in plays at Edinburgh, um, hugely respected comic, but not someone that's ever uh, been thrust into the spotlight. You know, he's someone which everybody uh, loves on the circuit. He, he Essentially, like, like what Mickey Flanagan was before Mickey Flanagan broke out, 
That, yeah, no, I got you. Yeah, he's um, you know, a, a, just a, a job in comic, a hugely respected one. But but I think he don't think he'd mind me saying completely unknown. Um, Ken, I remember I I gigged a lot with Davey, and and you know I'm obviously Facebook friends with him, so I kind of was seeing his posts. And of course, he was wonderfully indiscreet in the early stages of this coming about. You know, posting that he had a meeting with Ken Loach, then being asked to take the post down because you know no one was supposed to know that Ken was making a film. Um. And again, David was just a guy being excited. Long story short, he went for numerous castings, meetings, run-throughs, and then got cast in the lead. And the reviews have been, like, just over the moon, like, uh, about his performance, about how amazing it is, about how much he conveys with this. And, of course... I think a, a, a big reason why stand, a lot of stand-ups become such good actors, and certainly in the case of this, is of course, you know, well, age, I mean, you know, pathos and all the rest of it. But a huge part of it is, is that our lives is, uh, we are, we spend our whole lives pretending to be completely at ease when we're actually under extreme pressure. You know, I mean, I mean, the whole art of stand-up is essentially acting and that we're pretending that this thing is normal but of course it's the least normal thing in the world we're up there racking to the roller decks in the head anyway long story short when this film won the palm door i mean i've just never seen such a buzz over facebook by you know as stand-up comedians traditionally we hate um our our colleagues and friends being successful and doing well <laughs> uh, uh, and and yeah the, the, the kind of overwhelming emotion of people that are just sad with this guy that's been grinding away for years and, and now in his 50s gets a lead in a movie with such um wonderful uh response uh which of course is the polar opposite to the response of of uh to the to the sean penn film oh yeah i've uh, you just you you know you switched me onto this before we started recording and i was uh, reading the review and it's absolutely brutal um, um so this is the guardian review uh who's the who's the journalist is it um peter bradshaw um, it's, no, it's uh, Benjamin Lee. Benjamin Lee, is. yes. Uh, he, he's been praised for this online. If you haven't read Benjamin Lee's uh, review on The Guardian of Sean Penn's new film, which is called, what's the film called again? The Last Face. The Last Face, which by all accounts is the <laughs> film ever made. Um, of course, Sean Penn... It's Charlie Theron and, and uh, Javier Bardem um, uh, giving career-worst performances as doctors falling in love in West Africa while black characters are relegated to the background. I mean, it, it, it sounds shockingly offensive. Uh, um, it sounds like Sean Penn is actually making a movie to celebrate all these amazing white people who do all this amazing work to help the poor black people. I mean, it, it, it sounds absolutely beyond reproach. Of course, famously, a year ago when Sean Penn and Charlie Stone were at Cannes together, they were dating, and now... Um, They've since broken up, making this very awkward. And of course, it probably doesn't help. As I believe that review or one of the other reviews said, she probably broke up with him when she saw the rough cut of the film, which I thought was a wonderfully harsh thing to put in a, in a, in a review. I mean, imagine what Sean Penn's going to do right now, having to parade around camp with, and apparently she did that thing where she dumped him and cut him off. Like literally, you know, what's that thing called when you just cut off all contact? There's a phrase for it on the social interweb. I've forgotten what it is. I'm, but, I'm not but, sure. But, I, I live in it, mate. I still call it the old Spanish archer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, she basically apparently just just blocked him, and oh, okay. turn around, and then their film's getting the worst reviews ever. Of course, the last time Sean Sean Penn got the worst reviews ever was 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 with um his his then wife Madonna for Shanghai Surprise. Oh yeah, I remember that was a. It, it, it's interesting when these things happen. When a film which seemingly is so awful, and everyone's saying like, "What the hell were they thinking?" Like, it, I, I guess this is the problem with someone like Sean Penn that wields that kind of power, whereby you know no one's going to question it. It's like, well, Sean wants to do it, we can't say anything. 
that's how I get, I mean, he's, you know, he, he gets funding off his name alone. I'm looking at the review now and the bit where it just says an extended Band-Aid video yeah. and closes that paragraph on close-ups of tearful orphans. That's all you need to know how bad it's going to yeah, be. I mean, I mean, but of course, I mean, when I read those reviews, I would say when I read an awful review, it actually prompts me to hire something or to go and see something quicker. Like, I mean, I mean, I mean, this is a bad example, but I guess like The Revenant, I did go and see it. My wife kind of said, look, we're going to go and see it because if we don't see it at the cinema, we will never see it. Because I don't know about you, I've watched about uh, the first 10 minutes of a thousand critically acclaimed movies on Netflix. And, and um, your listeners aren't going to like this, but, but, I, but is, you know, I've watched half of Birdman. Right, I'm probably never going to watch the end of it. I've watched half of 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 all of, of, of almost every critically acclaimed film, every Oscar-winning film. I mean, Boyhood, I just about made it to the end, but oh my god, in about oh that went on forever. It went on forever, and the and the lead guy's acting where he'd been told not to act, and he really wasn't acting. They both just had a mannequin standing there. Um, all these critically acclaimed films, I tend and I Revenant, yes, very good, but I would never watch it again. Um. Uh, and, and I was impressed by it more than I was entertained by it. But when I picked up a review in Empire magazine of a film called Momentum with a, an actor that some people deem to be an actor, I deemed him to be the worst actor of all time ever, James Purifoy, who I've never seen anything other than all. And to be honest, and I did interview him once. He's a lovely guy. So no disrespect, but awful, awful. Um, this film Momentum was supposed to be this new big franchise. They spent a lot of money on it. I believe Olga, someone from a Bond films in it. Google the Empire review of Momentum. It is so wonderfully scathing that the first thing I did was drive out to my local video shop, because we still have them here, and I rented Momentum, and I rushed home to watch it. I haven't done that with a movie in a long, long time. Um, I haven't seen any of the Avengers films. I've not seen any of the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, I haven't seen... I did just see Deadpool, most of it. I've never seen a Captain America film, but I rushed out to rent Momentum because of this terrible review. So th- this gives you some idea of how my mind works, and it probably leads quite well onto when we do our trauma special next week. Indeed. Um, who got booed at Cannes? Oh, uh, was it... Th- well, this film got booed re- massively. Who else did? Nicholas Winding Refn. Right. Which- for The Neon Demon. So was it for the trailer or for the film? No, for the film, when I started reading the review, yeah. and it and I got to the bit where it says serves up some lesbian, and I was like, ooh, mm, yes. And then the next word was necrophilia, ooh, and I was, yeah. <laughs> now, Don't put those two words together. No, I mean, I mean, I have to say, when I read about films being booed at Cannes, whatever the film, I do think, fuck you like who i mean i mean and there's going to be there's going to be some films that deserve to be booed clearly sean penn's film deserved to be booed like i mean but but i don't understand people like these people they get paid for a living to go and watch movies drink all night and and they've got to be in a a movie theater in the morning and they watch these movies for free and they're booing them like like i mean to be honest i i looked i watched the trailer and it looks beautiful yeah and the soundtrack that's a final pre-order day one no question because it's it sounds amazing also it's nicholas winning reference you know what if you're the kind of dick that boos a film here here's a tip don't go and see lars von trier film don't go and see a nicholas wending reference film like you're not going to like it if you're the kind of dick that boos stuff because it, invariably it's the Lars von trier films that get booed as well now uh, are they my cup of tea, uh, not always. I mean, I watched Necro, I watched uh, not Necrophilia, Nymphomaniac. 
Um, and and you know what? For what it is, I, I thought it was very good. And I also know what his type of people like. I mean, again, and I like Lloyd Kaufman. Like trauma films are my favorite films. Did you know that? Uh, I'm a little bit of a spoiler, but one of the films we're going to talk about later, yeah. Lars von Trier. Yeah. Was one of the producers, and in one of the episodes, was one of the writers. On, on, on which film? Not the one that you recommended to me. Yeah. No way. I mean, yeah. Kind of makes sense. That <laughs> uh, no, blew my mind when I read that originally. I was like, "What?" But but that does make sense, and I guess we'll talk yeah. about that in, in more later. Yeah. Um, but, so to me, like Wending reference, I believe his um, "Only God Forgives" was booed as well. Now, oh, have you seen it? I have seen it. Fucking god! I didn't like it. It was garbage. It, 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 it is. It, yes, it is garbage. I mean, I mean, the thing is, it does look. It does look amazing. Yes. Um, and of course, the the disappointing thing about it is that what were, so what were the other films? So it was Drive and Drive, and then uh, uh, Pusher. Push. Right. Okay. So uh, so I mean, two amazing films, and of course, you know, I mean, Drive. Let's face it, probably isn't for everyone. You know, we all thought. I wasn't a massive fan, to be honest. I didn't mind it, but I I didn't get all the. No. All the hype around. No, it. well, I agree because because really, it's a B movie shot uh, slightly more stylishly. You know, yeah. it's, it's the same plot as a as as every you know uh, WWF or whatever it's called now studios film or a, or a, you know a straight to video Nicolas Cage plot. I mean, but but you know, it's shot beautifully. Uh, Only God forgives. I heard it had been booed. I heard it was terrible. I then saw it had five stars in Empire. You know, and 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 you see these things anyway. So I sat and watched it, and I'm like, you know what, it's. It's disappointing because when you see it's this or this supposedly awesome director and Ryan Gosling and you think, oh my god! I mean, I mean, the film's interesting, and you know what? This guy okay likes to experiment. He's never gone out and said my new movie's going to be uh, the most accessible, crowd-pleasing blockbuster, does he? No, absolutely not. And I get it. If he, you know, he's making fairly out there, dude. I mean, I, I have the the bloody um, review up here for the ne- the Neon Demon on the Telegraph. Yeah. And it uses the words, you know, cannibalism. Neon Demon booed in can over cannibalism and necrophilia. Right. So, so who, who, who's going to see? <laughs> I know. A Nicholas Wedding Weapon film. Where the, the, the last film was, you know, considered by people to be, you know, horrendously violent and, and, and shocking, blah, blah, blah. Like, don't go and see his next film. And if you do go... Don't enjoy it, by all means. Give it a bad review if you don't like it, but don't boo it. I, I, I really can't get my head around. And, and again, I mean, the filmmakers actually are quite um, restrained when complaining about such things because, of course, they can't complain about anything because everyone just says, oh, you overprivileged, overpaid, pampered, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I mean, we all know the work and effort that goes into creating a film. Don't like it, write a bad review, but booing it, I just think, you know, I mean, that said, you know, like I said, there are some uh, exceptions to that. I, I mean, my final word on this, when I watch a film with an all-female cast, I prefer them to not be dead and not eating each other. And when I say not eating each other, I mean... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, I like trash. I mean, I mean and, and oh, about these kind of movies is that less is that this doesn't really get said but the thing with wending Refn and, and and again with even with Lars von Trier is it's basically exploitation cinema shot beautifully and I'm a fan of exploitation yeah. cinema so to me it it's like they're like David Hess movies but just shot really nicely so um you know chances are I might like it but again I, I I get, I get. This is why I believe the, you know, you set up a failed critics podcast. You know, it's, it's these critics that you just know what they're gonna come out with. You know. Yeah. Last but, bit of the news. 
we've both seen this trailer from uh, Kevin Smith for his new film, Yoga Hoses, which I first time I saw it and I said to you in an email, it looks like a trauma film. It does, but not as good. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, I mean, Kevin Smith, obviously, we're both huge fans of. Yes. He's had a, a fascinating career trajectory in the, you know, to go from obviously massively low budget homemade movies to huge blockbusters to then, did you see that very weird cult uh, horror movie he made? The, yeah, Tusk. Oh, it was. Oh, no, the one to be the cult, you mean? Yeah. With John Goodman. Oh, I quite like that. I didn't yeah, mind that. I, I did too, but uh, such a weird, so, so un. I mean, obviously, very low budget, but it was just him doing what he wanted to do. Yeah. And it wasn't tongue in cheek. It was just, it was weird and scary. Kind of like, um, that, uh, British. It was based on the, on the, um, what are they called? The Westboro Baptists. Right. That's, that's, that's how that came about. Yeah. But it was just kind of weird and, and, and cheap looking. But, 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 but he's had a, there's not many directors that have, have scaled like huge budget heights and then gone and made films like this. I mean, the problem with yoga hoses is, I mean, who knows? I mean, look, these directors often don't cut the trailers themselves and don't have a say in it. But, I didn't find anything of interest or anything funny in the trailer, which is disappointing because it looks like my kind of thing. I know. I, I really, I knew it was supposed to be terrible. Mm. And I was just like, oh, I just don't get it. It just looks like it's you and your mates mucking about. Yeah. And it's almost like they've made a video for themselves yeah. that they shouldn't be showing to anyone else. Basically, it looks like an Adam Sandler Netflix picture where, it's weird how Netflix, sorry, it's off the point, but it's weird how Netflix has actually almost become a dumping ground. I don't know if you've seen the absolutely terrible uh, Ricky Gervais and Eric Banner film. Which Oh my God, I saw that. It was so bad. so bad. And so you read these interviews with Gervais where he goes, I make my films with Netflix because they don't interfere and they don't, and, and, and they don't interfere like a studio do and they let you do what they throw the money at you and let you do what you want. And I'm like... There's the fucking problem, <laughs> right? And 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 suddenly, I mean, who would have thought? Net, what Netflix is very cleverly doing is bringing around uh, a, a consensus of bring back the studio system. I mean, Jesus Christ! Like you might think that the the, the Blackheimers and so forth don't know what the fuck they're talking about, but here's the thing: I think they probably do. Like, yeah, but, don't let the lunatics run the asylum. Don't let the run the asylum. Don't just throw a load of money. At, I mean, and of course, there's always going to be instances of interference, uh, studio interference, which which don't pan out. But in actual fact, in most cases, the biggest cock-ups in, in cinema history traditionally are the filmmaker not allowing the studio to interfere. For example, yeah, I mean, the big, the, the, the Fantastic Four film, you know, possibly giving that one-time director, you know, uh, uh, too much power, whatever. I mean, again, that, 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 that's speculation. But all I know is that that, that Ricky Gervais film is the mu- I mean, if any, if I've ever watched a film that needed some interference, it was that. And then you watch these terrible Adam Sandler films. I've just seen the trailer last night for the new one that's coming out. It's him and Rob Schneider, and of course, oh, they they need to take a trip to a to a, a beautiful Hawaiian resort. Of course, they bloody <laughs> do for this plot to, to work ahead. And uh, and it's fascinating because Netflix could actually be this, and and is in in a lot of instances this wonderful creative. Uh, uh, haven. Hence, you know, Beast of No Nation being, they keep talking about that being an example of, of doing a film right where Kevin, uh, where Sean Penn went wrong. And the reason that Beast of No Nation struggled to get any recognition was because they didn't give it a white protagonist. They said, no, we're going to tell the story properly. And as a result, you know, it didn't reach the audience that it possibly should have done, but, but luckily reached a bigger audience th- thanks to Netflix. But then you've got these, yeah, I don't know why, anyway, I'm, I go off the point, but, um, it annoys me when I see, um, Netflix throwing all this money around at, uh, 
garbage. Garbage, yeah. Welcome back to Underground Nights, where we're going to dip into the world of cult comedy. Um, myself and James have picked a title each that we've uh, basically forced each other to watch, and we're going to pick our top fives as well, and we've also got some listener contributions. But first of all, we've Owen, our producer, bless him, he doesn't like us, he wants us to earn our crust, so he's given us a few questions here that he's, he wants asking, and I guess the listeners will want to hear too. What makes a cult comedy? It's an excellent question, isn't it? Well, you came straight back to me when I floated this idea and nailed loads of points and asked that exact question. So go on. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, to be honest, I think a lot of this I possibly uh, got from my own reading an article maybe in Empire magazine years ago when it was kind of defining what a cult comedy was. And they kind of came to the conclusion that essentially Spinal Tap is the definitive, was the definitive cult comedy in that it was a movie that came out didn't really make anything of a splash, didn't do much business, but then slowly through word of mouth and people passing VHSs and it being watched on tour buses and in, you know, on oil rigs and in schools and it suddenly became this, this kind of cultural phenomenon despite never actually being a huge uh, financial success. The other perfect example is, of course, uh, with Nell and I, which mm-hmm. is... And both of which uh, are films that I, I love, with now I possibly even more so. It's one of my all-time favorite films, but I would never include it in a thing like this because it's now become kind of the reverse of a cult comedy in that there's nothing cult about it. It's about as main, even though it's never become a mainstream financial success, it's about the most mainstream comedy can be because you can't pick up a single magazine article about the best comedies of all time without it being in there. Yeah, I mean... It- I agree with pretty much everything there. It's, it's, a, it's a really strange one, and I've always kind of said to people, it's whatever you want it to be. It really is. If, like, if, if you've got you and five mates, and I'll give you a classic example. Back in the day, me and my mates religiously watched Revenge of the Nerds. Right, right. Right, which probably made quite a lot of money back then. It was probably the, a mainstream equivalent of The Hangover now. Exactly. And it kind of... But exactly. for us, we didn't know anyone. We, you know, there wasn't a massive amount of us, and that was... That was the film we were gravitated towards, and that was our cult comedy. Yeah, I totally agree. In the, you know, for me, growing up, there's loads of films that I used to watch all the time. Uh, With Nell and I was definitely one. Of course, we played the drinking game and so forth. But, um, but I completely agree. A, a cult film is whatever you want it to be. But ultimately, what I prefer to personally, de- 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 you know, define as a cult film is one that someone, or generally, the, the, the general public haven't heard of. Yeah, I mean, how annoyed do you get when you hear the term underrated or guilty pleasure and for me it really winds me up because there isn't there's no such thing it shouldn't really be a it shouldn't really apply to films that you love i I completely agree i mean guilty pleasure is the 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 stupidest thing ever because you know what if you're guilty about it don't do it you know like a a guilty in in theory the definition of a guilty pleasure should be should be murder or sleeping on cheating on your wife like it's stuff that you're not supposed to do um you know i do not feel guilty about the fact that i like um watching trauma movies i don't feel guilty about the facts that i love watching porkies i guess to be honest guilty pleasure probably would be what you said which is revenge of the nerds which back then we loved and there was nothing wrong with loving now however in a more enlightened age we now know that there is actually a scene which makes a joke of a rape 
Um, doesn't make a joke of rape. He actually rapes her. Yeah, and, 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 and she um, turns out to be over the moon about it. And uh, I mean, I mean, it's staggering. So I mean, I guess Revenge of the Nerds is possibly the only film that I would allow to be called a guilty pleasure. And it is, it's bizarre, isn't it? That it's bizarre because that scene is completely indefensible. And yet you want to defend it in a way you kind of go, well, yes, it was a different time. And, and people go, what? You lived in a time when rape was OK? Well, no. But uh, uh, and, and it's weird that that scene is is deplorable. But it was clearly written with a kind of like poor nerds mindset. I'm more thrown that you know that that scene exists because I, I, it wasn't till quite a couple of years ago. I was rewatching it and I suddenly thought, oh, yeah. And I hadn't seen anyone else ever mention that that happened. It's funny. Weirdly, I'd seen the film years ago and I'd obviously forgotten that, but then read something recently and then in a part of VHS bought it and watched it and wanted to see how much it stood out as being utterly horrifying. And um, and in fact, in this, well, I'm sorry, everything uh, everything I'm saying leads into talking about what your cult comedy choice is because weirdly... There's something, what I was about to say about the Revenge of the Nerd scene is that it is a, a deplorable act and it's, it's horrifying that it's kind of treated as a joke. Much in the same way, though, that, that all kinds of horrendous acts are considered jokes in uh, modern comedy films, in Apatow films and so forth. And, of course, the perfect example being the, the film that you've chosen to, to talk about today or, or, or told me to watch, in that what's weird about that film is it's full of deplorable incidents and yet it remains utterly lovable throughout. And I don't know how it does that. I don't know. We, let's 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 dive into that, yeah. Mark. Because my choice that I'd seen that I knew you hadn't, I really wanted you to see mm. it, is a Danish film yeah. um, from 2010. It was not that old, yeah. and it's called Clown, mm. and it features two real comedians or entertainers from Denmark in a kind of playing a bastardized version of themselves. Yeah. Frank. And Casper, Casper yeah. being this terrible kind of misogynist, womanising, uh, egomaniac. He's a big celebrity in Denmark. And Frank, who's the central character, is he's kind of almost like his sidekick, but you can tell he actually really wants to be Casper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I can't thank you enough for recommending this because to me, this film is the definition of a cult film. You know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm my my life is comedy, my business is comedy, uh, uh, film is my obsession, it's my passion. So, in theory, I should have heard of this film. And yet, yeah. I had never heard of it. You said to watch it, you kept saying, have you watched it yet? Have you watched it yet? Yesterday, I finally got around to, to watching it. And of course, I'm halfway through it. I, I was, you know, I'm like, because I wanted to not know anything about it. And I'm halfway through it, and I'm kind of blown away by it. So I start Googling it, and I discover that it was it was like the biggest financial success uh, of, of any film, any Danish film of all time, uh, that these two guys, as you say, were respected comedians and it was their first big screen movie. I mean, there's so many things that are fascinating and interesting about this film. And I almost don't want to uh, spoil surprises uh, to listeners uh, who are going to go and check this film out. It's called Clown the Movie. And I was fascinated to see that Danny McBride has bought the rights to it to remake it in America. Because yep. the odd thing about this film is that um, the premise, even though, it, I mean, the premise itself isn't highly original. In fact, the premise, I believe, I mean, it was original in 2010, but the premise has been done many times uh, recent, in recent years by, you know, the, the frat pack crowd, by the, the Vince Vaughns and the Jason Sudeikis. In fact, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very similar 
you know, essentially take... It's a road movie, it's, isn't it's it? It's a road movie where a kid is forced to come away with them. Now, of course, nowadays when this happens, the kid will be either a kind of foul-mouthed, you know, Christopher Mintz Plass type, or it'll be that young British kid that was, I believe, in a Ken Loach movie who's gone to Hollywood and done very well, who's actually in the Jason Sudeikis movie that I'm thinking about, We're the Millers, which, granted, is actually quite funny. But it's essentially putting a child, putting a 12 or 13-year-old child through some horrendous encounters. Like, in the Sudeikis movie, he tries to force him to suck off a Mexican cop. Um, in this movie, uh, Clown, there's, you know, everything from... Well, if I really don't, you know what? I mean, it's rare, rare I would do this. I don't even want to. Sp- I, it's not going to. I know because I know that not many people have actually seen yeah, it, I, even though it's been around for a while. It, I don't want to spoil it either because it is so funny. So, I, I guess the one thing I'm going to say, the one thing I will say is, is that it, it goes places. If you think you've seen gross out comedy, think again because because this goes the extra level. Like if if you thought the moment when Ben Stiller's cock is caught in his zip. And after that brilliant scene in the thing about Mary, and you don't think you're going to see it, and then suddenly they show you the cock. Um, if you thought that was extreme, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, this is. But but what is staggering is these characters do these deplorable things. They are also deplorable human beings. I mean, I mean that guy is his whole. The whole reason of him going on on what he calls tour de pussy is tour. No, it's a tour tour de pussy. Tour de pussy. Um, Frank is a tortoise. Is that he just wants to sleep with prostitutes, sleep with uh, school girls? Um, now, what's clever about the film, which I guess is a huge part of it, is the reason it worked um, in its homeland, is the fact that everyone knew and loved these uh, these comedians already. But what's brilliant about this is it really doesn't try and make them likable. They just somehow are, which is the sign of a really, really skilled performer and writers. The, the, really, these characters should be... Uh, well, at, at no point does the script try and make excuses for them. No. Right. And, yeah, I mean, for me, one of my favourite scenes, which, again, I don't spoil it, but it was when um, he uh, he asks his mate to take the blame for, for what he did with the woman. And, oh, in the pancake house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, he says, and he says, I, I just put my finger up. up, up. And, um, and, and the speed with which she just forgives him. <laughs> it's the funniest thing I'd ever say. Like like that. We're just like, oh, poor you. It's that, you know, and then, the, I mean, to be honest, I mean, every other scene, but what's weird about it is that for a high concept, um, gross out movie, and I think this is something which, you know, Danny McBride will definitely blow when he makes it. And it's, they're not going to be able to replicate this. No, it just, it is, will come off across as really nasty and snidey and sleazy, whereas this does it, that, it's a, with a plum. That's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head. If you Danny McMide these characters, they are just become monsters. Yeah. Um, what these guys pulled off. And, of course, the other thing is it's been, it has been done. This this almost identical plot has been done by Hollywood. But what makes it charming is the, is the Danish element, is the fact that it's canoeing and the fact that it's this weird book in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. Like, this doesn't translate if you make it a Texan whorehouse. It doesn't translate if you make it... I mean, really, nothing translates... Unless you completely change all of those details, which then, like I said, just becomes like almost every other road movie made in recent years with a child involved. Of course, the other thing is that the fact they give this child very little to do, but not in a demeaning way. Like, that is how kids that age are. Or at least how I was. Very shy, very quiet, uh, uh, all the rest of it. it Hollywoodized, it would be Christopher Mintz Plast, like uh, F-bombing and in, in motherfuckering. You know what I mean? There are long periods in this, though, where there aren't that many laughs. Yes. It's quite gentle. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, which builds up around a 
you can see a, a minor mishap yeah. kind of propels out of all control and then you're hit with this bang yeah. this huge kind of marquee moment throughout the film exactly. which come from almost from nowhere and i think it's absolutely genius I, 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 and I, in terms of sitting there holding my stomach and gasping for air yeah. this is the one film that the, in recent memory to be fair has left me at, you know properly breathless from laughing i, I agree and, it is, and that is an important point that you mentioned that that there aren't big laughs all the way through which is what would happen when when this is hollywood eyes you know where where every scene has to have a set piece where especially like in all these films the opening scene has to have a set piece it's invariably someone gets caught masturbating or something like that but whereas the thing with this is it's about 20 minutes i believe 18 to 20 minutes before the first set piece and oh my god what a set piece i mean oh i mean because I, mean, I didn't see it coming either no. for pardon, pardon the pun but right, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant it's absolutely amazing and then the, and but and the, then even though the moment itself is more kind of like horrifying than laugh out loud funny the laugh out loud funny uh knock on from this truly awful disgusting thing that happens is her appearing later on with a patch on right but right? i mean i mean that's like I just... she's wears a patch in the sequel too <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me that was the funniest thing of all like like at the time i'm like they're not gonna go there are they they're not gonna go there did you see what was coming then well um when he went upstairs i saw it was coming but i must admit i didn't think in a million years where it keeps topping it right is that um when they're telling him he should do that you keep thinking are they gonna go there you know that that could be quite funny it's not that clever and then you think he's gonna do it and she's gonna wake up and go oh my god what are you doing and then and then you don't you, you think that's gonna be it and then you don't think well it's not gonna be a mother and then and then and then it's like well you're not gonna see it oh it's not gonna be in her eye oh, but do you know what i mean it it's it, it, it keeps topping it and i think that's the genius of this scene is that um is that i mean so i did see it coming but i never was saw to what level yeah that's what i was kind of getting at you could i yeah. kind of knew what was going to happen but i didn't realize quite yeah to the extremes that they were gonna they were gonna take it and they kind of replicate that through they do, and, and what's brilliant is the film. Unlike a lot of films of this era, it's not full of really annoying screaming and shouting. You know, no. like, like to me, like Borat. You know, and this is the thing. As as I've been reading about the film, I believe the comparisons have been made to films like Borat and films like Curb, i.e., the the comedy of embarrassment. Which, to be honest, I think does it a disservice because it's it's actually not. It, it's it's more it's more mainstream than that. It's more. Um, it's more ballsy than that. Like the comedy of embarrassment now, to me, just turns me off. And I've loved Curb, but you know what? And I'm I can't hear Larry David and and Wanda Sykes screaming at each other. You know what? Shouting isn't funny, right? And I say that as someone that shouts way too much. What is brilliant about this is, and again, equally, I said what's not funny. We know that that wonderful phrase. There's two types of people that don't say anything: people who talk a lot and people that don't talk at all, right? And and again, I mean, I'm well aware that I am someone that talks a lot, but I love that phrase. Basically, anyone that just is constantly talking 
is they're not actually saying anything of interest and the per- same as the person doesn't speak at all and I kind of feel the same about these films where I hate the Ricky Gervais like long awkward pauses staring at a mug I don't find that funny I also don't find Larry David screaming and shouting and everyone throwing stuff Larry Larry like I don't find that funny you know that's easy comedy right um what I love about this is is it's something I basically haven't really seen before which is why it's not really fair for people to to make these comparisons. Where I don't know why I didn't. That guy, the the the, the tattooed guy that wants to, you know, Casper. Casper, like that character really is is everything I deplore about uh, human beings. Like he would be someone I would avoid, like the plague. And and at no point does he ever try and redeem himself. But yet, no, <laughs> he's utterly likable. And I, don't yeah, really, I love him. Uh, and again, I mean, I can understand why he would be likable for the audience at home. Uh, i.e. Uh, Danish audiences who love him as a performer. I don't understand how me watching this film, not knowing this guy, and I, I think I read in the, the Guardian review, or maybe it was the M- Empire review by Simon Crook, who's actually a good mate of mine, uh, it made a really good point that um, it somehow stays good-natured and sweet, despite the fact it is one of the most disgusting films I've seen. I mean, it, it's it's genius. I actually managed to find an interview with them um, in English, because they're both... Of course, they speak fluent English. And it turns out that Casper presented Deal or No Deal. Right. And Franks presented the Danish version of World's Funniest Videos. You know, no way. I'm telling you. Oh, my God. Basically, they are Noel Edmonds and Jeremy Beadle. Oh, my God. And they have made that film. Okay. Now is your mind blown. That is even more weird. i tell you what I thought. I thought that they were comedians, i.e. very, very edgy stand-ups. Yeah, you know, they do do stand up, but because it's a small country, so although they do stand up and were quite successful at it, they both had TV careers as well, and that was the TV work they were doing. Wow. So I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, that's pretty mainstream stuff. I mean, and, and deal but, or no deal. <laughs> yeah, which again, I mean, you can't imagine a. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, is that you know, if a Beadle or whoever, uh, you know, a Beadle and Nolan was went into a film like this, it would be it would be like Sex Lives of the Potato Man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this the, the brilliance of this is is that despite the fact we're talking about these like ludicrous uh, uh, set pieces, it's it's the film is so understated. Like on this point, as we said, the first 15, eighteen minutes, I actually didn't know if it was a comedy or or, or if it was suddenly going to turn into a horror. I didn't really know what I was watching for the first twenty minutes until that first thing happens. And the great thing is, is it really doesn't try and keep. When the set pieces happen, it doesn't feel like it's trying to top them. It, um, it just feels, they actually feel quite naturally organic. Well, to give you a little bit of history, it was a TV show. Right. Um, there are six seasons, which if you're in the States, and can you get Hulu in Canada? Hulu, yes, you can, yes, yeah. Okay, well then, all seasons are free on Hulu. Wow. Um, and it, it's kind of like a, it's not quite as out there on in, in the TV version, but it's it's... The same guys, the same setup, the same cast. Right. Each week, something, you know, some calamity will happen. And they, they're on record as saying that they, they drew up a, like a top 20 list of taboos they wanted to cover. From you know, like AIDS and necrophilia, Down syndrome, all these right. horrible, terrible things. Right. Cannibalism. And managed to deal with all of them in a 30-minute sitcom, which is on national television. See, that's amazing. And I'll tell you what's clever, if, if the TV show is indeed as clever as the film, is that there's something about making that list, which actually goes against the kind of thing that I would generally 
uh, like. Like I hate feeling like boxes are being ticked, even if it's in a in a you know in a list with a list of offensive subjects. But when they do it, it's so you don't see them coming, and it's so subtle and so clever. Yeah, that, that uh, and that's how uh, that is definitely how I felt watching this. None of it felt crowbar. Actually, actually, you know what? Uh, to me, is one of the best moments in it, if not the best, if not one of the best things I've ever seen. Which again, I mean, I'm always loath to. Um, I really don't want to spoil this surprise. But uh, yeah, I mean, just to go, go around, beat around the bush. Uh, there's a scene where a uh, a protagonist fucks a guy. He's fucking a guy, right? Right. <laughs> and 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 there's no uh, a heterosexual uh, protagonist. Mm. And, and at no point is this um, is this uh, made an issue of. Uh, he's he's a tiny tiny bit um, embarrassed, but not but not like it, I think I guess what I just found so fascinating about it was that in an age when you know Janapata, who don't get me wrong, is a very clever man and a very brilliant filmmaker. When but 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 when basically all of those films resort to really really base level homophobia. Um, the fact that this managed to make a, a, a hilariously, brilliantly funny scene out of uh, possibly the least homophobic thing I've ever seen, which is yeah. which is a heterosexual character uh, uh, being fucked by a man and his mate. Like, I mean, the look on his mate's face is just so <laughs> fantastic because it's just like, all right, okay, well, um, yeah. He just kind of deals, you know, he just accepts it and walks away. But, yeah, and it's never, and there is a little payoff, and there's a payoff later. <laughs> <laughs> That payoff, I swear to you, I don't think I've seen the rest of that bit because I just yeah. was gasped for oxygen. <laughs> right, that is absolutely brilliant. Which again, it's slightly old school gag when he when he goes to sit on the couch on the on the couch. It's a slightly old school gag, but it's done with such brilliance. I mean, it, yeah, it, there's just so many. And again, I'd actually even forgotten about that scene, but I remember actually when I was watching it, that scene just jumped out at me as just being so brilliant and so basically the reverse of all of these uh, incredibly, you know, it, it, it boggles my mind. I've seen it con- com- um, compared to The Hangover, right? which I find ridiculous. I find that utterly absurd. The, the weird thing about The Hangover was that not, what I hate, I think the thing I hated most about The Hangover was the fact that, uh, that they were drugs. Like really, we can't just have our protagonists do this to our set themselves, like the rest of us do. We have to have them drugged. Oh no, it's ridiculous. Right, anyway. um, we need. To, we're going to wrap this up, and I'm just going to ask you: Are you looking forward to seeing Clown Forever? I am, and, and I think. I mean, I think the message has been um, out there, and I'm staring at the, the artwork right now. But because you just told me to watch it, although that in itself I knew was a high recommendation. Anyone listening, I mean, I mean, please, it's going to be hard to do so. But anyone listening, please do go into watching Clown without all of these expectations that we're kind of putting on it. I mean, essentially, what we're talking about here is is a film which, unlike, as I say, I mean, I get so and I, what I watch almost every comedy that comes out of Hollywood. I mean, go and watch. The the, the uh, terrible Ed Helms vacation remake, and then watch this. And I mean, my God, it's 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 special. And I just want to thank you, Paul, because honestly, this is the true definition of a cult movie. Where uh, movies are my life, comedy is my life, and I'd never heard of this until you told me to watch it. I've only ever recommended two films to you, yeah. and I'm 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 two for two. It's, it's spot on so far. <laughs> cool. Right. We're going to talk about After Hours. Yes. Right, lead on this because this was the film I recommended to you. So what you did? Your, so you hadn't seen it before? No, I hadn't. I, if I had, it 
it would have been in 1985 because no. I genuinely didn't remember anything. So it very good chance that this was. In fact, I'm looking here. It didn't come out VHS till 91. So no, I, I, this would have been a first time watch. Um, so uh, I guess the question is, like, you, you obviously were aware that it was a Scorsese movie. I don't know how much the background yep. you know that basically Scorsese had um, obviously come off making some, you know, obviously very very well received films like Taxi Driver. Had then spent many years trying to get uh, Last Temptation of Christ made and having an absolutely awful um, experience, uh, terrible, terrible, you know, was very depressed at how all that was going, was very angry, and then basically said he wanted to make a very, very similar... And, it, of course, he'd made Raging Bull, and Comedy, these two kind of... The, 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 these huge, huge movies. Uh, I, I believe he said that... I think it was... Or New York, New York had been like a like something like a six-month shoot or something crazy. And he basically wanted something super simple. So basically, it had been three years since The King of Comedy, uh, a film obviously about a comedian, and then he wanted uh, something, and The Last Temptation of Christ thing had all fallen apart, all gone horribly wrong. Of course, he did ultimately end up making it uh, years later. But um, after... Do you want to give, should we kind of give people, because again, there's going to be a lot of people who haven't seen this, yeah. so give them a kind of a, a premise? Yeah, so basically, so, so essentially the premise, so uh, Scorsese wanted to make this basic, uh, a, a very similar movie. So it's basically, it's a, a, a night gone wrong. It's, 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 Griffin Dunn plays a word processor who meets the girl in the coffee shop and then sets off across, uh, what is the worst night of his life in New York. And it is essentially a comedy, although a very dark comedy, kind of like Clown. It's nothing you expect. Uh, but, uh, and possibly an important point to mention is it's also not really laugh out loud funny. And when, when I say not really, I kind of think not at all. And I've watched this film. A thousand times. Uh, it was. It, we all have the movie that, as a child, we were obsessed with in the video shop. The video artwork that we stared at. So for some people, it was the Sword and the Sorcerer. Uh, for me, it was definitely the movie Splits and the movie Party Animal. But for me, the number one video artwork I stared at for years before I was allowed to watch it was After Hours. So as a child, the film didn't necessarily live up to it, but it's now become just a movie I love because it's so an inherent part of my childhood. Uh, how did you feel watching it, Paul? I genuinely didn't know what to expect, and I was like, I did get confused a few times. I have to say, yeah. especially when they start when they um, started going on about the plaster of Paris paperweight that resembles a cream cheese bagel, yeah. and I was thinking, is this essentially some kind of fairy tale? Because the way it's structured and the things that happen in it are not really that not that based in reality, are yeah, they? Yeah, true. I loved Linda Fiorentino. <laughs> I was thinking, if I'd seen this in 1985 with that outfit, I'd have been all over this like a rash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I gave myself a rash, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um. it, it, I mean, it, it, I've seen a few of these ones where, you know, when the, uh, your evening out goes horribly tits, yeah. and he just kind of cannonballs between all of these mini disasters, and they snowball into you know more and more horrendous things happening to him um and, and i got it and it's something you said the other week actually when we last recorded i appreciated it yeah. but I, I was struggling to be massively into it right because i was expecting a comedy i don't know and i i smirked and sniggered and especially when she does the whole scene about surrender Dorothy yeah. where they have that conversation in the canteen and she says, you know, every time, every time my boyfriend comes, he used to shout surrender Dorothy because yeah. he loved the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And that I properly laughed at. But 
I, I think maybe my expectations were slightly skewed. No, no, no. Well, I, I, I don't know if they were. In that, um, I've always found it hard to. It's weird because, as I say, this film is so inherently uh, linked to my childhood, and that's why I wanted to pick it because, to me, it's the mm-hmm. definition of a of a cult comedy. In you know, you've got Griffin Dunn, who is now kind of a respected director, but kind of hasn't. He he was never a, such a leading man, even though he was obviously leading this. It's the fact that it's a Scorsese movie, which of course always gives it, you know, gravitas, and yet it's one, yeah, one yeah. of the least known Scorsese movies. But yeah, I mean, I've never possibly ever laughed at it. It's also it's such an odd film. Like it, it, on on the DVD, there's all these extras them talking about the script, and you you kind of think, well, how did this script read? Because as you say, it's kind of nightmarish in the, which is possibly what I liked about it as a child, and I did find it really quite terrifying. This and it was weird, obviously, as a child watching it, I'd possibly never. Uh, I'd never been out in these situations. And I mean, I was literally a very, very early teenager watching this film. And of course, since then, I've had many, many nights where I have ended up in these awful situations where you get trapped in a nightclub or, you know, and, or, but invariably it's because, yeah, I'm, I'm paralytic drunk and I don't know who I am. And of course, this is a, a long time ago, but where I've been lost and then I've suddenly discovered myself walking down the middle of a dual carriageway or in the middle of a field and where am I? So, it's weird in the in the, those are realistic scenarios that happen to people. Not really much of what happens in After Hours is, as you say, realistic. No, I mean, and it it kind of leads you to think that you know X is going to happen. For example, when when he kind of first goes around the around the flat and he's in the bedroom with her and they're having the chat, and he finds that cream yes, that, yes. that's for the burns, yes. and you think, oh, there's going to be a big reveal. Yeah, and then. It, that kind of disappears and it goes off on a completely different tangent. Yes, yeah, and, and and that's the other thing is you are waiting for a big twist at the end, which I mean, again, I to be honest, I've watched the film probably about 150 times. I still don't really understand it, and you said you got confused. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of waiting for a, for a, for a kind of a reveal, which again, it, it, it's. It's always cop outish when people say that they, oh it's it's a nightmarish it's a fantasy it's a dystopian blah 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 because you're basically saying well you mean you couldn't think of an ending but yeah what just doesn't really make sense is like is she covered in burns or not I don't know you never do find out though do you no you don't and it, or is it that she has a fetish for it mm. now no I think you're reading too much into it right right but what is it because when he starts looking at her body weirdly when she's dead which again is, is yeah, but he doesn't. He doesn't. You can't see anything, can you? It looks her skin looks perfect. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's so. So it's a weird. Um, also, the other thing about him as a character is that he's not overly sympathetic. Isn't he? He's kind of a moron. Yeah. Uh, he just wants to get his leg over. Yeah, he wants to get his leg exactly. So yeah, I mean, to me, the greatest thing about the film is the end because I obviously <laughs> this, haven't hadn't worked in an office, but having spent fifteen years working in an office where almost every day was like that, where I would roll into the office and quite often, you know, from being out all night, come in, uh, uh, looking like that, probably smelling like that, feeling like that, and sitting down at a desk. It's weird that I watched this film aged 12, 13, 14, and saw this kind of dystopian nightmare, which then did indeed become my life for, for many years, uh, walking into an office that looked very similar to that. And feeling like that, so I don't know. That's why this movie is so in my head. Well, I to, it's weird because I, you were because you were at GQ, weren't you? And I around that time I was working in the city for a media agency, and I would sometimes because I used to get in really early, yeah. 
and I'd sometimes walk along London Wall on the upper part of it and see my colleagues asleep in the bushes where they'd been in the podium all night <laughs> and just literally carry them back into the no, office. No. I mean, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I mean, and so it's a, it's a funny thing in the film I feel should be watched. And and it's a hugely important part of my life. And I definitely wanted to use it here rather than give you Bachelor Party or something else to watch. Um, I also feel like it's a film that should be watched also because of its its place in in history. In that you know it kind of it's Scorsese's love letter to New York. It's it's all of these things. But the weird Cheech and Chong in a Scorsese movie. Yeah, Cheech and Scorsese movie. Like who would have thought? But the weird thing about all of this is. um, it's not a movie that, I, and it's a movie I watch lots, but I don't necessarily really think it's a great movie. But but there's something about it. Absolutely, no, I can I can I completely agree. It's absolutely. I mean, having as I said, having not seen it, great cast. Yeah. It really confusing at times, but there's there's enough there of him kind of pinballing around New York on this evening out and meeting these more and more outlandish and crazy people. Yeah, and everyone's got an agenda. And yeah, no, I I really I. You know, I enjoyed it as as uh, you know in terms of filmmaking, but I did struggle in terms of entertainment. Right, right. I mean, and, and it's funny. There's um, what I can't remember what they were, but there was um, some alternative endings to discuss in the DVD extras. One of which was that you know he just goes into the back of the truck and um, he just goes into the back of the truck, and then that's the end. And they said we can't do that. And then there was there was one that was truly awful. Um, the, the bottom line is, it's weird that eight films have terrible endings. This is a, this is a, 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 you know, an odd, a slightly above average film with a truly brilliant ending. Yeah, I, lo- I knew straight away as soon as he, as soon as he was put in the back of the van. Yeah. I kind of knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, no. Well, but, uh, but as I say, to me, it's the ultimate definition of a cult movie because uh, not many people have heard of it, and it's a bloody Scorsese, right? It, mate, exactly. You've, you've, you've nailed the, the subject matter tonight. Is you know, let's not forget, it is supposed to be cult comedy. Yeah. Um, we'll take a short break yeah. and we'll do our top fives. Yeah, nice one. Welcome back to Underground Nights. We are going to count down our top five cult comedies. But before we get to that, we have had a few listener suggestions. Jonathan Sothcott has sent in Carry On Camping. Nice. Uh, Brooker has gone for Clerks. The Big Lebowski, Evil Dead 2, and The Breakfast Club. Nice. Uh, Matt Lamborn has recommended Spaceballs. That's a good shout, that That's, that's a very good shout. It's a very good shout. James, uh, second suitor on Twitter. Oh, he's nailed it here. He's gone for Dazed and Confused. My Cousin Vinny. No. With Nail and I. Bottle Rocket. Office Space. And the daddy of them all. Spinal Tap. Right. That, 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 that's, that, he knows his stuff, That's a he? brilliant list. Dazed and Confused, uh, I've never thought of, even though it is, I've never thought of it as a comedy, it is without question one of the greatest movies ever made. Bottle Rocket absolutely falls under this category. My Cousin Vinny, I would almost say, doesn't because it won an Oscar, which makes it not a cult, but then it's kind of forgotten now. And there was something else on that list. Uh, Office Space. Office Space, which actually, uh, taking it back, Everything that Spinal Tap and um, With Now were back then, Office Space was like the last five, ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Came out, did no business, uh, no. did reviews, and, and it's now considered one of the greatest comedies of all time. So, all- Is Jennifer Aniston in that as well? I believe she might be. 
She's in most of my uh, his films. Yeah, she was. She was. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, of course. I mean, everything. About, I mean, Office Space is genius, and and again, is oh. is the ultimate definition of a cult comedy. And one more <laughs> from Liam. He's gone for Harold and Maud. Yes, spot on. Brilliant. Leningrad Cowboys. Amazing. Hundred yeah. year old man. You're gonna love this. Toxic Avenger. Uh, yes. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Clerks. Yeah. Trailer Park Boys. Yeah. And Narco. Do you know what? I don't know what that is. No, no. I mean, I mean, Trailer Park Boys are very cool because, of course, where I am, that's filmed where, basically near where I live on the east coast of Canada, and they're probably the most famous exports, definitely famous comedic exports from here. Uh, the, the uh, only other person really, one of the other people, Donald Sutherland's from the city I live in, and Ellen Page is from Canada, but Trailer Park Boys are definitely the kings of, and of course in England they're very, uh, it's a niche thing, they can sell out the Hammersmith Apollo, mainly full of Canadian fans, but it's a niche mm-hmm. thing, so Trailer Park Boys, again, a very, very popular um, thing here, but in England would definitely be considered a cult. Yeah, The Secrets of Adventures of Gustav Klopp. Right, um, that needs to be watched. Yeah, I don't know. Gus suffers from narcolepsy, falls asleep all the time, and has dreams about supermen from comics. Um, Van Damme would play one of these supermen, a short and secret appearance. So, that sounds really intriguing. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. Thank you, Liam. There's, there's another one which the um, which the readers haven't suggested, uh, listen, haven't suggested, which isn't on my list because I haven't seen it, but I know it fits into the category of cult comedy, and it's embarrassing that I haven't seen it, but it's all gone Pete Tong. Oh, don't talk about that. No. Is that, no. Is that on your... It is. Oh, shit, sorry, sorry, okay. <laughs> I, I, I did read your list. How weird that I uh, forgot that. Okay. I didn't send you a list. Didn't you? No. Oh, my God. Well, oh, my God. I'm, I'm so psychic. Fucking my mind is blown. That is it. How the fuck did you pick that out of all the thousands of films? I, 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 it's, I, I have no idea. This is so weird. It was in my head because I was thinking... I haven't seen it, and I thought I thought this should be in this, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> and do you know what's even more fucked what? up? Do you know who directed that? No. Michael Douse. It's a Canadian picture, and it's the same director who made Fubar and Goon, who Lowell Dean was on last episode championing. And I didn't find this out until today no way and of course yeah. well, the other weird thing about it is you've seen comedian's guide to survival the film about my early years in stand-up and the yeah. two two of the main actors in it's all on pete tong are of course in that mike wilmot who is i believe the manager in it's all on pete tong is in is in comedian's guide and of course uh paul k who is the lead in it's all on pete tong plays my editor which is oh, one of the boy. lead roles in i mean isn't that weird mate this the this planet's just getting smaller and smaller. It's crazy. I can't believe you. I just, I, I'm genuinely shocked. So yeah, so Mike Wilmot plays Max Hager in it, but again, I haven't. But but weirdly, I have it open. I I have a screen open on my on this computer I'm staring at right now that I've been staring at for the last two hours while talking to you. Right, I have it. So I have it because it's the next thing I'm going to watch. But I had no idea it was on your list. Anyway, <laughs> let's crack on. So we do your list first then. We'll do, we'll do a round robin. Oh, okay, perfect. Okay, so wh- what's the first thing on your list? Oh, it's all on Pete Tong. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll start with my number five, yeah. which is Idiocracy. Right, I've not seen it, but I've heard. 2006, Mike Judge. 
Um, it's basically Luke Wilson is a is a, an army librarian, and he gets kind of pushed into taking part into this experiment where they're going to freeze military personnel. Right, right, right. Turns out the base and everything he's he's kind of frozen in is all demolished and shut down, and he's forgotten about. Uh, he's only supposed to be in there for a year, and he wakes up 500 years later. <laughs> And everyone is now stupid. Right, right, right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so it's a brilliantly spot on. Uh... Oh, I genuinely, ever since this has come out, I watch it every two years. And every two years, it becomes more and more frightening that it's going to come true. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, like, they couldn't even predicted the Kardashian thing or... No. And it, and this is a classic cult movie because it, it, it didn't get a major theatrical release didn't make much money at the box office, but it's got a proper cult following. I love Mike Judge. Yeah. Beavis and Butthead are, for me, two of the greatest creations of our time. I I could just watch them all day long. And we've already mentioned um, Office Space as well. He, he's, he's doing really well now. He's got that series on HBO. I just wish he was making more features. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, and and clearly the the legacy of his you know big screen movies is incredible, and more so than almost any other uh, director, those films people are not only talking about now, but they will be talking about for decades. I mean, there's a theme running through oh. pretty much all of my picks, and and a lot of the films we talked about tonight is that a lot of them revolve around a fish out of water. Yes, this is classic he wakes up 500 years in the future everything's changed everyone is properly retarded <laughs> i don't know what the word is but they are fully like Ugh! and it's just so funny watching him interact with them i i honestly that is now top of my list to see go on what's your number five okay i i, I had to put it in right but it's um it's Shaun of the dead which is really not. Uh, I would. I, I get annoyed when I see that on other people's lists, and I tried to keep it off, and it was off the list for so long. And I just thought, you know what? I can't not put it in. It's too funny. It essentially was a cult, or in the. It was certainly a cult in North America. In the, you know, I, I mean, weirdly, I, I don't know if I've told this story to you before, but I was at like one of the first screenings of Shaun of the Dead in London in a screening room. I was there with the film critic John Norton. And uh, we obviously thought, oh, Simon Pegg and, and his mate made a film. We love space. This is going to be shit because things were, you know, back then our experience of British, you know, uh, sitcoms gone gone big screen were not good. And um, we sat in this screening room and Edgar and Simon Pegg came out to introduce it. There was about 20 of us in there and we thought this is going to be shit. And then it started and when, you know, two minutes in, you know, Nick Frost says, can I get any of you cunts a drink? <laughs> and and I, I laughed for about five minutes uh, uh, over that. And then the film just got better and better. And, I mean, uh, lots of people talk about horror comedies uh, being successful. I don't really, I can't really name many horror comedies that have been, even though I, I, I might collect them, that have been as successful as this, in that it was scary. You were genuinely invested in the characters and their safety. Hysterically funny throughout. And... um a cult in that we all now we just thought everyone knows it's brilliant back then we all thought it was going to be terrible it was amazing and it was probably the the start of possibly inspiring british filmmakers to realize that when translating stuff from the small screen to the big screen they didn't have to be shit they could be good 
Um, which again, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I mean, Simon Pegg has somewhat gone off the bot. You know, World's End was, you know, was like a Shaun of the Dead by numbers. But they, they put their all into that, and it showed. And and it's a huge cult in North America because, of course, here no one had heard of these guys, and yet it became a massive uh, uh, underground success here. So uh, Shaun of the Dead, what do you think of it? Oh, oh mate, I love yeah. it, and it's it's one of the few films. You can come back yeah. from the pub with your pals. Yeah. What are you going to put on? Exactly. That and, and that alone. Any that. film that you can you, you're going to whack on when you come back from the pub with your pals qualifies as a cult movie for me. That, that's exactly it. Exactly. And you still laugh, and there's still a bit that's, that's just sort of surprised you. And you know the you, bu- you share in the kind of experience, and you all know the lines. And yeah, yeah brilliant. The buddy element between Peg and Frost was brilliant before it became too strained and forced. You know, it really, they'll never re- recreate that magic again. But um, they don't need to because they did it once and it was perfect. Right. My number four is Orgasmo. Right. From- Trey Parker, Matt Stone. Yeah, no, you have seen this. I, I think I have. You, you're going to say I haven't. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> no. think I have. I, 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 I have seen it once. It really, um, I was, should, should we say, distracted. Right, I, yes. Off my face. But, but yeah, so I don't remember seeing it. Well, so. it's one of my favourite subjects, and, and we had Josh yeah. on last episode, Mormons. Yeah, yeah. Who end up making pornography. That's right. Two of my favourite subjects, James. Mormons and pornography in a film. That's as good as it gets. It, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, pretty much, that's all you need to know about it. And my favourite character in it is, is Matt Stone, who plays Dave the photographer. Yeah. And he only has one line, which he repeats again and again, <laughs> which is, I don't want to sound like a queer or nothing, but... <laughs> and each time that but is followed by, at the start, a sentence which... You know, quite plausible, you know, like, I don't want to say like a queer or nothing, but Depeche Mode are a pretty sweet band. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> By the end, he's talking about men's asses yeah. and stuff like that, and it gets more and more. It is just hysterical, and I absolutely love it. And again, I think it, you know, it, well, not many people have seen Orgasmo. Yeah, that's true. And What's your number four? Okay, number four, you will have seen, it doesn't need explaining, Porky's. Love it. Give us a give us give us a spiel. Um, you know, like most people, you know, it was it was it was probably after Carry On film was probably the first sex comedy I saw. I couldn't believe how dirty it was, which again seems ridiculous now. Obviously, the main set. You say that it's still got it's still rocking an eighteen certificate. Here. Yeah, which is weird, given you know when you look at the movies that we get fifteens like Bad Neighbors and things. Yeah. You know, the extent of this, I mean, the, the, the extent of this was the dick through the whole thing, which, which back <laughs> then was just considered so outlandish and so extreme. Which now It's not the poster, isn't it? You've got the little glory hole with the eye. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Which they've even referenced in the poster. I mean, it's the big set piece. Again, quite ingeniously, the characters aren't that likeable, which, which I always found odd, but well, they don't try and make them likeable, but you kind of root for them. But you know what, Porky's one, two, three. I watched them a thousand times. Taught me everything I, I, I probably. I mean, why I'm so bad in bed. It taught me everything I knew about sex. And um, <laughs> uh, it's a cult in the now. Uh, the younger generation probably haven't heard of it. You know, especially now when you think that now American Pie is considered dated. But yet, when American Pie came out, the thing that we all loved about it is it reminded us of Porky's. Yeah. What's your number three? My number three, and I. I... 
still can't believe you managed to steal my thunder on picking a massive curveball oh. that nobody would have seen is it's all gone Pete Tom. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I think the reason that I didn't think it was such a curveball, or rather I wanted it in there because it was a curveball, but I, but I also don't think it is a curveball. In that I hear from people all the time, this is the movie they watch with their mates when they get back from the pub. Right? Yeah. And I guess it came out around the time as like Kevin and Perry go large, which, you know, obviously hasn't become a cult. Uh, no. Um, Although I still do quite enjoy it. I do enjoy it. It is and, silly fun. And, and, and one of the writers, uh, Dave Cummings, is actually one of my best mates. And, um, and, and I agree. That, yeah, it has its moments. But, but It's All Gone Pete Tong has become something of a cherished minor masterpiece. And I, I'm embarrassed I haven't even seen it. I know. It's about – it's a really strange story because you try to pitch it for someone. They think you're mental. It's, a, it's about a guy called Frankie Wilde who's a DJ out in the big clubs in Ibiza is the most obnoxious twat or one of the most obnoxious twats ever committed to screen. Right. And if you were going to get someone to play that character, yeah. Paul K. Absolutely. He's a fucking legend and nobody does batshit bastard better than him. Yeah, and, 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 and you've, you've obviously seen him in Comedian's Guide. I'll I, I tell you why it was top of mind. I couldn't work out why it was. I'll tell you why. It's, I obviously sat and watched Paul K on set every day playing those those scenes and I mean I don't want to put words in your mouth but for me Paul K is one of the best things about Comedian's Guide like he steals every scene that he's in mate I don't want to piss on your chips again but he is the best yeah, thing yeah, in yeah. the film yeah. I'm telling you now yeah. he absolutely he's the funniest thing a lot of those lines uh, that are, are so brilliant again and it's not, it's not often that a writer of a film would admit this but a lot of the funniest lines in the film he did improvise we didn't we didn't write those lines um, I take, all the threats he issues they must have all been improv yeah I'd say 70-80% of his comedy in the film he improv and I'll tell you why it was top of mind it was because on the set everyone kept saying oh my god I love uh, it's all on Pete Tong I love Pete Tong it was the thing that everyone went up to him and said but they all said it in a kind of like oh you're not going to believe this but I love this way but he always knew it was coming because he said yeah I hear it all the time and it was like when I was interviewing Michelle Pfeiffer a few years ago and I said look I said this is going to sound weird but I am the biggest fan in the world of Grease 2, which, we, which we've established before. And, but anyway, and she goes, I knew you were going to say that. And I said, why? And she said, because everybody says that to me. And for him, it's like, anyway, the reason it was top of mind for me was last night I watched the film of a book that I loved. Uh, the book Kill Your Friends by John Niven is one of my all-time favourite books. Uh, we've had this discussion before. Have we? It's also my favourite book. Oh, I don't think we have had this discussion before, which is why we, we love doing this podcast. Oh no, go on. And and last night for the first time, I, I, I didn't realise I have this on demand thing here where you can buy and of course because a lot of movies here don't arrive in cinemas or indeed of course on DVD, i.e. mostly British movies like, you know, uh, uh, Southcott's movies and movies of his that I've done, I'd suddenly notice on this on demand thing. Anyway, I noticed Kill Your Friends though, which I've been desperate to see, even though I'd heard not good things. So I paid my 5.99 rental and I watched it and actually nothing could prepare me for how fucking terrible it was. It absolutely uh, beggars belief that, that, that with and of course the script uh, is in theory great in that it's lots of dialogue from the film. And some of my favorite lines about Jerry Halliwell climbing over broken glass to sucker Adrian, all, all these lines. I mean, the, the <laughs> book is just amazing. Um, yep. The problem, basically, is the, is the acting and the direction, I think. Well, no, the, I always said that this book is unfilmable, right. and when I reviewed it on Foul Critics, it, you know, and I said, guess what? It is. Yeah, but so was, so was uh, Clockwork Orange, and so was American Psycho. And to, to me, what went wrong was that they tried to 
like i.e. I, both those films were said to be unfilmable and it turned out they weren't um, and one of the biggest problems with this is that I mean clearly and again I don't want to savage the director for this because it's not his fault but clearly they had absolutely no money I mean what record company looks like these those grey corridors and, and, <laughs> and, and, the, and the blinds are always drawn because of course they're shooting probably day and night I mean, and, and, and they're, they're, it's lit badly and it's drab. And like it, the, the beauty of this book was it was it was you get swept up in it. And I think I read a review somewhere that it made the point that um, they didn't want to glamorize these people. But that's kind of the point. The point of the book is, is that you love this guy, even though oh, he is oh, evil. I, I, and yet, yeah, absolutely. Stell Fox, one of my all time heroes, even though, yeah. let's be honest, he's. He's a massive cunt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have been it better myself. And who could have pulled that off better than Paul Kay? Oh. So that's so that's why. Anyway, so we have gone off the point here, but that's why it was so of mine. That last night I'm watching Kill Your Friends, mortified. Now this isn't saying Nicholas Holt is a bad actor. However, he's never made an impression in anything. So. Um, totally miscast. Yes. Yeah. We we pulled him up on this. Totally miscast. It was the most awful casting in the in that he doesn't deliver a single one of those lines convincingly like Mm-mm. and it goes to show the problem with celebrity that you know they got Nick, Nicholas Holt obviously wanted to play a nasty bastard they were so happy they got Nicholas Holt day one on set someone should have said he is not delivering this I mean he's also a cordon I mean obviously has plenty of experience in this but is brilliant at acting act off his face um, yeah. unfortunately at no point, I don't think Nicholas Holt has possibly ever, I mean, he can't have ever done it or ever seen anyone on it, because at no point does he look remotely gacked up, which is absurd for playing Stephen Selfarts. You know, I, 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 was Paul? I didn't hate it, but I was massively disappointed by it. I was just, I just I was so desperate to see it on the big screen, I would have taken anything. I think that was where I was coming from. Right, I, I, and did you enjoy it a bit? A bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I and I am and I, I must admit I haven't finished it and I'm enjoying it a bit. I mean, Corden Corden does put in an excellent performance. Corden's the only one that Corden's the only one that really inhabits the part. Like the acting throughout, like none of it's convincing. All the stuff where they go to Cannes to buy that I want to fuck you in the ass yeah. record. In the book, it is so debauched yeah. and so amazing and so outrageous. Yeah. And that was what I was really looking, and they just didn't get that message. Yeah, I, they, you know, like a couple of birds in bikinis in a, in a hotel suite. It was just no, that's not what this is about. Yeah, I actually read a review that pointed this out. It said that for a movie that's supposed to be this debauched, it's very sexless, and it made the point that maybe they didn't think they could go there. But it's weird because it, I believe it came out a few months after The Wolf of Wall Street, and of course, mm. after The Wolf of Wall Street, it's like The Wolf of Wall Street is how I pictured it. Like, yeah, like, and of course, I mean, no one, and I know that's Scorsese, but you don't, but it doesn't have to be as high budget. I mean, you're right; they they toned it down, which is what's weird. And like I said, I mean, a whole committee misguides. Anyway, all of this leads to the hands the fact that I was watching this movie last night, thinking who could have pulled this off. And of course, Paul K. I bet they would have said, "Oh, he's too old." Blah blah. I mean, I mean, clearly Nicholas Holt. I don't know how old he is, but he looked he's about 21, as if that guy could play a jaded. It's possibly, I would go to it's some of the worst casting I think I've ever seen. Now you've said it, mm. I'm so annoyed that Paul Kay wasn't playing that right. role because it hadn't occurred to me before. Right, because, and me have, and again, because there's a scene in, in Comedian's Guide when Paul Kay bollocks Buckley and he walks out of the room and then Paul Kay leans forward and hoovers off a massive line of coke off the table. That was not only not in the script, it wasn't in the rehearsal, he just did that. 
straight after. And of course, thank God the director didn't shout cut because it's brilliantly funny. I mean, Paul K. Paul K. would have eaten up the screen as, as that character. Absolutely. And and no, I totally agree. And and from scene one would have had so much charisma and charm that you'd have gone with. That was just a weird thing. Was oh. I mean, yeah, Hulk, awful. Yeah, I'm gonna. We're gonna drag you very briefly back to it's all gone Pete Tom. So t- yeah, so tell me. So K plays a DJ, yeah. absolute cunt, mm. completely egotistical maniac. Yeah. A little bit dim, though. You know, you kind of feel sorry for him from the start, even though he is this fucking egomaniac. He loses his hearing. Yeah. And being a DJ, problematic. And it kind of it shows the fall that him... It's a really sweet part where he, he meets a teacher who teaches him how to sign and all this kind of stuff. And, and then his redemption. So It's not kind of balls-out, laugh-out-loud funny. It's actually quite a touching drama you've just got this rampant performance on screen from um from paul k right. yeah I, I i love it and i just i can't believe you managed to pick it up <laughs> <laughs> there's me trying to be clever fuck you That's manager insane. Right. That, that is insane oh um, god you know i always say we're singing from the same hymn yeah. sheet you really really are mate i know your dad where was he in 1970 i know i know <laughs> Did he know an usherette in Hastings? Yeah, he probably did. He ate, I mean, he's probably at the cribs. <laughs> Go on, what's your number three? Um, um, again, was a huge uh, financial success upon release, um, but I still stand by it as a cult. Police Academy. Lovely. Yeah. Again, watched it. Like Porgy's watched it a million times. It's weird now watching it, given it became such a huge critical success. Given, again, what was interesting with these films back then is they weren't all-out lunacy comedy. They, they weren't just set-piece after set-piece after set-piece. There were long periods of plot, and there's bits in it that you kind of, like, are tonally quite different. You know, of course, the, you know, the fact that the big set-pieces in it is, you know, uh, someone getting a blowjob under a, under a table, which, you know, I mean, now that would be not even considered good enough for the opening scene, but uh, or, or extreme enough, sorry. But you know what? It's it's part of my history. It's part of my legacy, and I love it. And I also love, um, obviously, you know, Steve Guttenberg's one of these people that you're like, what went wrong? How was it possible that Steve Guttenberg was the lead in like the biggest comedy of all time at that time? How did he blow it? And you wonder why. And as you know, last last scene doing Panto in Bromley. Right, Panto in Bromley. And interestingly, when he was there doing that, he did an interview with Metro newspaper which I challenge anyone to buy. I still have it kept somewhere, and I don't normally keep newspapers about anyone that, about anyone that isn't myself. But <laughs> it's the terrible thing. <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I am a bit of a hoarder when it comes to stuff about myself. But, but, but this interview with Steve Guttenberg, it's the most uh, like shockingly selfless, egotistical monster. It's like how they say, you know, like when Chevy Chase and, and, and like Spies Like Us was going to be in my list, uh, but, but it didn't make the list. But like Chevy Chase is supposed to be such a monster that, you know, because, you know, how did Chevy Chase go from being the highest paid uh, top uh, actor, uh, highest grossing actor in Hollywood to disappearing overnight? And the reason being is that Hollywood will tolerate a huge amount of cuntiness. They will really tolerate like Wesley Snipes level of awfulness. They will tolerate, you know, uh, uh, you know I mean, I mean, uh, Bart, you know, not Bart Kerman, what's his name? The guy, well, Don Simpson. They'll tolerate Don Simpson levels of, of barbarianism. 
But Chevy Chase was such a whole different level of cunt that no one could work with him, as proven by the fact he disappears for 15 years and comes back and does community and then behaves just as awfully. And I believe that Steve Guttenberg may have had a similar problem. So check out this Ouch. interview with Steve Guttenberg uh, from Metro. It's brilliantly kind of angry and bitter. And it, it, it's hilarious. And, and, you know, if you can't find it, um, find me on Facebook or Twitter, James Moninger. I'll scan it and send it to you if anyone's listening and wants to read the Steve Gutton. He's coming back to interview from when he was doing Panto in Bromley. I'm more alarmed that what, we both knew he was doing Panto in Bromley. This is what this podcast is all about. <laughs> Do you want to know what my number two is? Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. It's Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, genius, genius. That is absolutely, <laughs> that is genius. And it was going to make my list, without question, one of the best films ever made. I Tell- genuinely, Andrew McCarthy, off the back of, because this is 1989, yeah. and I remember I went to Brighton to meet this bird, and we, we had a date, and we thought, well, let's go to the pictures. Hmm. I'm showing my age now, bird, pictures. <laughs> but it was 89, you were allowed to speak like that. Yeah. And the only showing that we could get into was Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> well, lucky you. It was because I I loved Andrew McCarthy. I loved that whole Brat Pack thing. All those guys I thought were amazing. And to watch him and Jonathan Silverman yeah. do one gag for 90 minutes, which was dragging a dead guy around. Yes. And made me laugh I mean, for pretty much the whole film. It's genius. It, it, it's weird you picked that because it was during my – it was the guy I lived with, Paul Lawson, was this guy from Hastings that I lived with at university – who, uh, his nickname, weirdly, was Porno, but that's another story. It was through him that I used to travel to Hastings every weekend to go to the crypt, but his favourite film was Weekend at Bernie's, and so I bought a set of original Weekend at Bernie's lobby cards and had them stuck on the wall, and again, we would watch it all the time for the exact same reason, which is it's ludicrous that a mainstream movie starring two of the biggest actors of the day, or at least one of the biggest actors of the day, is about dragging a dead geezer around. And on a really nice tropical island. It was like, really? And it's weird how often it gets culturally referred to, though. Because, I mean, so often when you hear of someone dying and there's a show, you know, know, someone dies, someone well-known dies and they've got a big show coming out, people go, oh, we could always just do the weekend at Bernie's with them. Or, you know, when I'm gone, you know, can you weekend at Bernie's me? Like, it's weird how it's become the reference point for dragging a corpus around. Who would have thought that would become a thing? I know exactly, and do you know what? I didn't even rewatch this for for this podcast. I actually rewatched Weekend at Bernie's too. Oh, genius, yes, again, which again is when he comes back to life with the uh, Egyptian curse with a voodoo. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Right, come on. Okay. What's your number one? Uh, oh, I haven't done my number two, have I? Oh, sorry, your number two. No, sorry, just mate. Just quickly, Bachelor Party, Tom Hanks' finest hour, uh, without question. Again. At the time, it seemed incredibly shocking that this kind of mainstream actor had done this uh, movie that had, you know, uh, drug use and, and donkey fucking and all these things in it. Um, but uh, for me, I found Back to the Party as hilarious then. I find it hilarious now. And also, it stars my favourite actor of all time, Adrian Zmed, who was uh, the guy from TJ Hooker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's also Mr. Nogarelli, head of the T-Birds in Greece, too. Um Oh, my God. Do you know how old he is now? Um, no, how old is he? 62. Oh, my God. I mean, see, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, right? If you said to me, James, if you said to me, James, uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds and Ryan Gosling at the end of your road having a drink in the pub, I'd go, oh, all right, whatever. But if you said to me Adrian Smed was doing a, 
uh, a $500 a ticket signing on the other side of Canada, I'd be on the first flight over there. I mean, that's how I roll. Um, anyway, have you, have you seen Bachelor Party? Of course yeah. I have, yeah. But do you know, it's still rocking. Because I love the BBFC and how they the, the, how they work. But when when companies don't resubmit films to be reclassified, because yeah. you can do it after... T- Time passes, yeah. this is from 1984. This still has an 18th certificate. Right, right. <laughs> as it possibly would due to the animal fucking, but you're right, it's weird that compared to... I mean, although it is pretty racy, and what I love about it is it has so many endings, and it's quite high concept. I mean, the ending when it ends with a fist fight or a punch-up in a 3D cinema, now, that's quite clever. And I believe the people behind that's right, the same people, the Neil, Bob Israel and Neil Israel, yeah. Same people behind Police Academy. And I also got another film of theirs the other day, uh, Moving Violations. I think that was it. Anyway, uh, going off the point, what's your number one? My number one is Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Genius. <laughs> Almost ruined quite recently, actually, when someone sent me a YouTube link right. to, to somebody portraying uh, Jason Mewes. <laughs> now, for people listening to this, uh, please go to YouTube <laughs> and type in... Um, let me see what I think it's James Mullinger, Jane Silent Bob. James Mullinger, Jane Silent Bob. Uh, myself and an amazing British comedian who is actually uh, one of the biggest uh, VHS collectors possibly in the world, a guy called Richard Sandling. He's been in Peep Show. He's, he's the guy with the beard in Comedian's Guide. I saw him at the screening. Oh, you saw him there, right. He's a big, he's a big lad, isn't he? He's, an, he's, he's a big lad, he's an absolute legend. Yeah, he was, he was stood he, in the doorway he, waving um, to people when we came out. He did a single perfect movie. Uh, where you've got to recreate a perfect movie. So if you can, if you want to go in there, you can watch me it playing out my favourite scene from Lethal Weapon. Uh, perfect movie, Lethal Weapon, perfect movie, Good Fellas, a perfect movie, Jen's Up, Love Strike Back. Uh, a brilliant film. I have the soundtrack. I listen to the soundtrack on the road a lot. But um, why did you pick this, not Clerks? Because this is a culmination of, like, you've got Clerks, Chasing Amy, Dogma, yeah. and... I was totally obsessed with all of these films from, from the late 90s into the early 2000s. I just completely took over my life. And when Jane Silent Bob Strike Back came out, it was the biggest in-joke ever. Yeah. It referenced all the other films. Yeah. It, it was like if you weren't immersed in this world, you really wouldn't get anything out of it. Yes, you're right. You know what? In many ways, because I, I remember watching it. I went to see it on... Um, on a screen, a screening theatre on on Poland Street uh, in Soho. Um, again, did what I always do at screenings and smuggled in a big bag of red stripes. And I'm sat there pounding beers. I believe I was with that uh, with the film critic John Norton again, good friend of mine. Um, and I remember sitting there, yeah, watching it, having again like you watched Clerks, watched all these movies, watched them all the way out. And basically, you're sitting there thinking, this is a movie made for us. And it and it's huge budget, like it really is. It, it's amazing that basically Kevin Smith got this power, which he he was one of us. He was a he was a clerk. He he made a career for himself, and then rather than make you know, uh, yeah, you were a clerk. You worked in Smiths. Yeah. I was a clerk. I worked in Debenhams. Exactly. Like we did these jobs. Like we knew. We, you know, we hated our customers. We did all these things. You know, and this guy built his way up, built himself this career, and then makes this movie that is literally just for the fans, rather than going off and making say Daredevil. I mean, no. it was, you're, you're right, it's funny, I'd never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely bang on. It is, a, it is a love letter to us, I mean, the cast alone, Do you, can you remember exactly who was in it? I, 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 I'm going to reel them off quickly, you've got Ben Affleck, Jeff Anderson, Brian O'Halloran, Shannon Elizabeth, Eliza Dushka, Ali Larter, Will Ferrell, Jason Lee, Matt Damon, 
Judd Nelson, George Carlin, Kerry Fisher, Sean William Scott, John Stewart, Tracy Morgan, Gus Van Song, uh, Chris Rock, Jamie Kennedy, Wes Craven, Shannon Doherty, Mark Hamill, Jason Biggs, J- James Van Der Beek, Morris Day of the motherfucking time, <laughs> Joey Lauren Adams, and William B. Davis, who was a smoking man in X-Files. I mean, that is in That is a cast. That is exactly a cast. <laughs> um... But everyone hates it because it was like, I don't really get it. Yeah. No, I agree. Spot on. Good choice. What's your number one? Toxic Avenger. Yes. As we know, (laughs) anyone that follows me on Instagram on my collective account, which is Tromaville Citizen, um, and I I also have a Facebook group called Tromaville Citizen that is basically all of my VHS uh, collection and and my Troma collection. Uh, Toxic Avenger, one of the first movies I ever saw, in love with it it's hilarious it functions as a horror movie like Shaun of the Dead does as well but it's just it's it's my favourite trauma movie um, weirdly uh, of course the Holy Grail back and, and of course it had this beautiful embossed VHS case when it came out in England but it was one of the most censored movies ever uh, which which is saying something back then when things were cut to, to ribbons so the Holy Grail back then was to get the uncut version now the weird thing is is that of course the uncut version is, of course, you know, brilliantly, ridiculously gory. But the wonderful thing about the 18-rated cut version is that I can show it to my son. Like, my son, my five-year-old, is really into Toxic Avenger. Like, it's so cut that, that, that they start, a fight starts, then it just ends. I mean, it's literally, like, basically a PG. So my son uh, is now into Toxic Avenger, loves Toxic Crusaders. Um, yeah, you obviously seen Toxic Avenger. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'd not seen it for years and years, and then you've floated the idea of doing um trauma and i've now started on my quest of trying to watch as many trauma films as possible and that was the first one i started with genius which which for eager listeners that that is exclusive our next podcast which will be in a couple of weeks is going to be on trauma film oh god i've got to watch all of them (laughs) you know what i'm like i i make myself watch everything because i'm like i I'm, i'm so like perfectionist when it comes to doing these things i need to have seen right. everything i can't wing it like you can james <laughs> right, right. I, I, don't, I never wing it you know? <laughs> that was epic mate but um what have you got to plug what's going on i've taken some time off I've had a, it worked pretty much non-stop since I got it, but on the road constantly. The, uh, the only the one thing I would say is anyone is interested in my vinyl album, go to my website, jamesmanager.com. Uh, the album's on sale there. And um, and please do uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, James Mullinger. And I am going to be uh, adding a lot of new content there over the next few months. Uh, my last few big stand-up shows were, were filmed, edited, and uh, ready for DVD release. But I've decided instead of DVD... I am just going to release them free. So uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, which you can get to through my website. And uh, I'm going to be uploading loads of new stand-up free, completely free. But um, And uh, yeah, follow me on Instagram, Tromaville Citizen. Do you know what? I'm so looking forward to seeing your um, Harbour Station show. I really, really want to see it. So when that's ready, mate, let me know all over that like a cheap suit. Will do, brother, for sure, for sure. Um, you can find me over at Fail Critics. I will be there next week. I've no idea what we're doing. I think we're doing our top three movie stars triple bill. 
and you can also find me probably in a week or so's time over at Pick a Flick, where I was roped into doing a Korean Revenge special. Nice. Which is all kinds of fun with my mate Brooker. That is nice. Yeah, it's good. It was really good fun. I love all that stuff. That is the dream. And we're going to be back soon because uh, we're both now going to make time to do the Troma one. <laughs> we are. <laughs> James, as always, mate. An- absolute pleasure I love doing this with you mate. likewise you tell. it's been awesome a joy as ever uh, thank you and farewell and I salute you once again for putting me onto clown alright you're a ledge brother you, mate. take care mate. nice one brother yeah, nice one brother bye <laughs> Underground Nights is presented by James Mullinger and Paul Field. This episode was produced by Owen Hughes and the music was provided by James Yule. Underground Nights is a part of the Failed Media Network of Podcasts and you can check us out at failedcritics.com or find us on Twitter at UG Nights. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.